Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we get our guests to educate us about stories which they think are popular and important but are underreported in the press. I'm delighted today uh, to have two guests in the studio with me, James Bloodworth, journalist and author of Hired, Six Months in Low Wage Britain, and Melissa Benn, writer and campaigner and author of Life Lessons, a case for the National Education Service. Hello to both of you. Good morning. Good now, morning. Um, I will give you the obligatory chance to plug your book, James, your book, in a couple of sentences. Uh, so in 2016, I went undercover for six months in some of the most precarious jobs in different parts of the UK. Um, it's kind of pulling back the, the floorboards on a kind of a way of life that most of us don't typically see if we don't do those jobs ourselves. Brilliant. And Melissa, your book. OK, so everybody's talking about education. They always are, but they particularly are now. And there's a sense that the direction we've been going in particularly in the last eight years since the coalition, has taken us down the wrong road. Jeremy Corbyn was elected and talked about a national education service. Some people say, well, what is that? What might it be? So I thought, well, I would have a go at saying what a national education service might be. And But really, it's an argument for a change of direction in our system, which I think would vastly improve it. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Well, I'm sure your ideas will be popping up in a Labour manifesto very soon. Let's hope so. Um, great. So we're going to crack on. Melissa, I'm going to come to you first for a really fascinating and important underreported story. Yeah, I I came across this in The Guardian, but I haven't seen it anywhere else and I haven't read about it before. And I found it tremendously moving and interesting. So it's about a mayor of a small village in Calabria in southern Italy, who since the late 1990s, so it's got a long backstory, has um, been going against so much of the sort of movement in Europe and elsewhere. He's been welcoming migrants to his village, which was anyway depopulating. And he had a positive policy of saying, everybody is welcome here. And he lists outside at the entrance to his village, he names the different countries that migrants have come from. And he said, not only are you welcome here, but I want to help you to get skilled, to start up businesses and to live a good and productive life in modern Italy. So that in itself was heroic and imaginative enough. But now Matteo Salvini, the far right leader of Italy, whether it's him or whether it's people working for him, they've put the mayor of this um, village under house arrest, saying that he aids and abets illegal immigration. And in wow. effect, it's sort of trumped up charges. Trumped up is a good word, isn't yeah, it? Trumped, trumped up, up is, is now very, a very, very, very loaded word. And, and you know, well, and so a lot of people in the village are saying, "Look, this man has completely turned our life around," and they are coming out and supporting him. But they also make the point that you know, in that region of Italy, the mafia sort of. Uh, have free reign and here's this guy doing really good and productive things and here's this far right leader attacking somebody who's doing that and so but 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 I think the deeper the deeper message of the story for me is we hear so much about migration and how it's a problem and you have to put up borders and here is somebody who said let's 
let's turn this into something really, really positive. So I think it's got a message for absolutely all political discourses everywhere. I mean, I think this story was was just fascinating because, as you say, very, very hopeful and uh, positive in terms of bucking this very aggressive anti-migrant yeah. rhetoric. Yeah. But then a very unhappy ending because, you know, the powers that be are now trying to kind of arrest him. So where does it go now? I mean, what's the next stage of this of this story? Um, can he appeal? Can he overturn? Will he will he have a hearing or something? Like well, that? in short, I don't know. I mean, the, the, when I read the story this week, he was under house arrest and the village was rallying around him. I think what needs to happen is that more progressive forces in Italy more widely need to come and support him and, uh, you know, make the case for the wonderful things that he's done. But I I don't know enough about Italian politics on that day-to-day basis, but my sense is that the progressive voices seem rather silenced at mm. the moment. So maybe it's for those of us outside Italy to make more of this story and to say, hang on a minute, you know, this is just... Um, it's it's a kind of uh, I don't know. It's a sort of fable, isn't it? Yes, I it's a, a fable. fable. Fable is a really good word. Yeah. That's actually what I was it's kind a of modern fable. It is a modern fable. Well, and also it's just rare in this in in these times of very anti-immigrant rhetoric, particularly you see it in Hungary and mm. you know alternative for, for for Deutschland. But what's interesting, even in our own country, I mean, one we've just had the SNP conference. And one of the things that Nicola Sturgeon does actually argue for is a country like Scotland, which is ha- which has a diminishing working population, does actually need more immigration. But that is very much at odds with what the Westminster government yeah. is seeing, yeah. which is we've got to crack down on, on immigration. James, what's your take on, on this? I mean, for me, the big dividing line in Europe in the ne- next decades is going to be how different factions respond to, to migration, waves of migration, um, Typically, people fleeing. I mean, we had this report about climate change, this big report um, a couple of days ago. Um, one of the things it highlighted was there are going to be more and more flows of migrants um, yeah. from drought-stricken parts of the world. The conflict in Syria is, is I mean, that's been, been going on since 2013, uh, t- since 2011, but the refugee uh, flows from that have, have been ramping up since 2013. Um, and I think it's, if, if we just like respond to these things once once there are these waves of migration, you get... I mean, it gives kind of ammunition to the populists, to so the people like Salvi, the, the politicians like those in Italy who have been, you know, running on tickets purely against immigration. Yeah. Um, and I in think, Hungary as yeah, well. Yeah. And so I think politicians need to think more long term in terms of com- conflict resolution and also dealing with things like ch- climate change, which are going to prompt these waves of migration in the first place. But how do you how do do our political class balance that very, very difficult argument? And it seems to be getting more difficult, which is some legitimate concerns that that mm. people have about how their communities are changing the the results of of globalization the arguments that there is the argument that it could be depressing wages and conditions and all of that type of thing against you know the kind of rampant populism and some very very kind of quite dark sort of anti-immigrant how do politicians try and 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 get that balance right melissa well i i I sort of take a step back with questions like this it's a bit like education politicians are always required to do two things to know the answer and to have a line and and I, i i think the kind of major events that are ahead and the major problems that are causing them that you've just outlined there is no easy answer to it and i think we just 
almost I'd like to see a pause on anyone having a solution and to have a, a sort of absolutely honest conversation about how much migration has benefited this country, the problems that it's caused for those in poorer areas, what are we going to do about these major waves? I mean, clearly, countries that are doing well can't take in absolutely everyone from yeah. Syria and so on. So, you know... <laughs> You know, at the risk of sounding a bit like a politician myself, these are, these are bigger problems than our politicians in any national area are able to solve. But what we don't need is refuge in populism, nationalism, or a kind of failure to discuss the problems of migration in poorer areas. Yeah. Um, because I think one of the big, I think, failures of politics over the last decade... I think, and this is both Labour politicians and Conservative politicians, is actually not talking um, about some of the concerns that people had, so therefore creating this vacuum. But, I mean, it's very difficult because, as you say, Melissa, there's either a kind of, you know, everything particularly around immigration, it's so emotionally charged now. So as soon as you start talking about immigration as a politician, it's either, right, are you having open borders or are you you shutting the borders? It's a very polarised discussion where there isn't the more kind of intelligent and nuanced and realistic discussion about the pressures and more money being available to certain areas. But how do you think we can... How do, Do you think it's going to be ever possible to have a sensible discussion about immigration. I mean, I think the point you make about it being more polarised, I think that goes for politics generally at the moment. It's hard to find that middle ground. It's you either, you know, it's all or nothing. It's very binary, the debate. I think there's two mistakes that people make typically with the immigration debate. I think you have people on the left and liberals who will be pro-immigration, but they will not acknowledge that there are any challenges that come with it. So one thing that I noticed writing the book was that many of the workplaces I worked in, because it was an an overwhelmingly uh, Eastern European workforce, the dynamic would be different in terms of what the company got away with, how people would be more badly exploited. Um, But to deal with that, you don't need to then reach for border controls. You can deal with that through through things like stronger trade unions, through social democratic um, policies. But if you don't even acknowledge the challenges in the first place, then you know that annoys people. If people see if people are in those working in those places where uh, they see that people being badly exploited, the company getting away with things they wouldn't get away with with British workers. Then um, yeah, it, it gener- generates anger. Fantastic. That's um, that was a brilliant story, um, Melissa, and I think that's one that we should all really keep an eye on because I suspect the actions of Salvini. While we will be appalled, quite a lot of people will probably applaud him so I think it's a very important fable of our time to to watch now James I'm going to come to you for your um underreported story and this is a company which is very close to your heart <laughs> yeah so so recently Amazon have increased the minimum wage basically for for their warehouse workers so um, previously they paid the minimum wage but in Britain now outside London they're paying nine pound fifty an hour and inside London they're paying workers ten pound fifty an hour um, this is I mean, Jeff Bezos and Amazon have been on something of a public relations offensive over the last six six to eight weeks. So, um, I should just say you worked, you went undercover in Amazon. Yes, so I was. I went undercover in 2016 at Amazon for for my book. Um, I mean, I was I was shocked by some of the things I saw when I was working in the warehouse. I'd worked in warehouses before when I was younger. I'd done like labouring jobs, etc. So I I know what kind of hard work is, um, if you like, but. 
some of the things that went on in the warehouse were I'd never witnessed anything like that in a workplace in what the UK. What kind of things did you? So see? people being given disciplinaries for taking too long using the toilet. Um, I was given a disciplinary for taking a day off sick, even you know promising a doctor's note, and they still give a disciplinary for this. Uh, productivity targets where. I mean, you're walking around a, a huge warehouse, you're walking around 10 miles a day. Wow. And uh, you up to 15 miles a day sometimes. And you're being kind of, um, you're having to run around this warehouse all day to keep up with the productivity targets. Even, yeah, like I said, going to the toilet um, is considered, as they call it, called it idle time. Oh. Um, where it's, it's some the kind idea of transgression. That, uh, the idea that like a trip to the loo is like a mini break is just quite <laughs> Yeah, anything which which um, which slows down productivity, whether it's, you know, a necessary body, bodily function or not, is considered some kind of transgression. And you um, said that you, in your book, that you had seen people having to urinate in in bottles because they they didn't want to get penalized for going to the toilet yeah so i mean there was um this this thing has has been because it's quite visceral this thing has been one of the stories that's really come to the fore from the book in that one day i saw i found a bottle of urine on 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 the shelf in in the warehouse and first of all it was like what's that and then it immediately struck me why that would that would happen i mean a recent survey of amazon warehouse workers in the uk found that 74% 74% were afraid to go to the toilet because of productivity targets. That was why the group organised that survey. Um, so, I mean, Amazon's been on a PR offensive um, since my book came out, since the GMB trade union have been doing a lot of campaigning on yeah. some of the issues in the book, and since Bernie Sanders in the US. So I did some videos with him, made some videos with him about Amazon. Um, and yeah, I mean, you've had a... Inc- I mean, your reach on this story has been huge, and I think it has had a material impact. So, so, so what have Amazon done and do you do you buy it do you is is because there's the argument that there's a sort of sleight of hand going on well i mean it's 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 good first of all i mean any any kind of this means that you know hundreds of thousands of workers in the us and and britain will now be, receive a, a, a supposedly a living wage they'll receive more money each week and that's that's a great thing um but i would say that the, the things that came out of my book that were most disturbing about amazon weren't necessarily related to uh what the wage was so i mean on the one hand, you're working for employment agencies, and they they were the ones underpaying people. So I interviewed a girl in my book who was paid 62 pence an hour, um, and it took six weeks to get the money back because the employment agencies Amazon used were completely incompetent. And as I said, a lot of the other issues were around things like productivity targets, uh, sickness policy, disciplinary policies, uh, the temporary nature, zero hours contracts yeah. of many of the jobs. So I mean, this is this is it's good, but it's it's somewhat cosmetic. And there's also the fact that. Um, many workers appear, who work for Amazon appear to have lost monthly bonuses and stock awards yes. um, as if that's been taken away to pay for mm. the uh, higher wages mm. for workers. Mm. And, and I think that's the thing that, I mean, Amazon got a, a great PR hit from this and rightly so because raising the wages are a good thing. But then this came out that they were now going to possibly lose um, share, op- or, you know, these kind of other incentives. Melissa, what what do we do? What what can be done to try and improve not just the pay but the conditions of of people at work? Because I mean the the work James has done has been incredible and it's really shone a light on how tough it is in work for a lot of people. Well, would you think it very simplistic if I said trade unions might be a good idea? And um I, I've I've been following how trade unions have been modernizing and trying to adapt to the flexibility of the new workforce. And so, you know, obviously the old-style trade union is not going to 
always be able to reach those who are working in, in places like Amazon. But I think there's all sorts of initiatives by younger people that are achieving that. But what occurred to me when you were talking, it, it I was really struck that in a way the wages are secondary to the question of conditions. And it makes me think about the parallel in the public sector that teachers apparently surveys find they're actually quite happy with what they're paid it's the conditions of their work mm. that they find so difficult and in fact their conditions are far better than the horrendous conditions that you describe but it's the lack of autonomy and I think that it, it, I was going to say this is a modern thing but of course this is a Victorian thing isn't it where you go to work and you are totally within the control of one or two people who set these appalling rules about what you can and can't do and I think that's happening more and more in our schools as well there's a parallel there well I think psychologically the word control is so potent because that is what so many people feel I mean that's why the, the Brexit campaign was such a brilliant slogan take, take back, back control yeah. because actually for most people I think you're right you, you need a certain amount yeah. of money and money of course is important but having some agency over yeah. your day-to-day -day life is is hugely important and that is something that people do feel is kind of draining away from them but just coming back to the point about what what can be done I mean in an age where fewer and fewer people are members of trade unions and an entire generation of young people don't even know what a trade union is they have some kind of picture some historical picture mm. from the sort of 1970s how does the trade union movement even begin to make itself relevant, particularly when more and more people are working in a much more fragmented way and are sometimes not associated with one employer? I think, on the one hand, one of the reasons trade unions have declined is because there's been a very successful kind of uh, PR cam campaign by these companies to mm. completely demonise the idea of trade unionism and to, to represent it as to present it as, as a kind of throwback to and something that, that workers don't need anymore. So, I mean, this came up when I was researching the book. So, I mean, I, I drove an Uber taxi and um, during the induction for that job, there were, I mean, it was kind of rammed down our throats that workers' rights were some kind of throwback to something mm. that, that you didn't really need anymore. You were... You were an entrepreneur. You were kind of. And who rammed that down your throat? Was someone from someone in a kind of jeans and t-shirt kind of hipster who worked for Uber? Would, ah, so that was implied from that, you Uber. Know, it's, it's all about making money, autonomy, being your own boss, and things like workers' rights are actually a restriction on you, like a fetter on you, your your ambition. And um, I think the same thing's been done with with trade unions. And the the fact that you have these communities now in Britain who feel like they want to take back control, as the Brexit slogan went. I mean. That's partly the, the, the consequence of the decline of uh, working class democracy, the decline in those aisles of working class democracies where you can explain the world, where you have uh, some ideas, you know, you have a, 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 an ideology which explains why things are happening to your community, which used to be socialism. Um, but also the gives you the levers through which you can fight back and actually exert your influence on the world. So it's, you're not just a working class person who things are done to you, but you can actually fight back against some of this stuff. But the nature of the working class has changed so much that it's fragmented, doing completely different mm. kinds of work. So it's almost like you have to rebuild the principles of trade unionism and collective action for a 21st century yeah. world. And maybe that's one problem with the sort of Corbynite view, the Corbynite sort of image of the Labour Party which is that it's it it too, and, and certainly the press, the mainstream press, try to say this is just a throwback to a, to a world that's that's over. 
But actually, those principles are really, really needed in the modern world. But they probably also need some young, hip leaders yeah. to to. I, I think. To lead look, them. let's be honest. You look at our trade union leaders, and it, they do not scream modernity. Well, um, we've got a female head of the TUC. I one, Melissa. Yeah. No, no, one. no. I know, and I she's know. fantastic. Frances yeah. is uh, yeah. Frances O'Grady is great. Yeah. But I think you know the the the, the need to um, encourage and inspire a whole new generation of, of workers to, um, to, to, to mobilise and, and do collective bargaining and organise themselves is, is very imperative. Well, look, thank you so much for that story, um, James. Absolutely fascinating, as, as always. Now, we're just going to move on to my favourite bit of the show, which is <laughs> heroes and villains. Now, Melissa, I'm going to come to you because I think you have picked a stunning hero or heroine in this case. Yeah, so my hero of, is it the week? Yes, uh, is Monica Lewinsky. So for most people, Monica Lewinsky is, as one American comedian said, she's been a punchline for years and a punch bag for <laughs> years. And her argument is she had a consensual relationship with a man who happened to be the president of the United States. One of the many reasons she's a hero is that she never um, gave in to the pressure of the FBI, who took her in for questioning, kept her in a hotel room for hours and hours, tried to get her to wear a wire, to, um, entrap. to, to entrap Clinton. She said, I won't do it. And I think for a 24-year-old woman to resist that kind of pressure was magnificent. But then she had 20 years of being a joke and uh, being considered a woman who, you know, had an affair with somebody else's husband and all that kind of thing. She kept quiet from 1998 to about 2014, and now she has come out against bullying and shaming, and particularly online. And this week, she is leading a campaign, one of many. She's actually been nominated for an Emmy for a film she's made, actually, oh, about... Brilliant. Yeah. And she's um, on online. She She's asking people who've been abused online to take the worst thing ever said about them and make that their hashtag. So I think... Hers is hashtag clunky, slutty, streetwalker, fatty or something, whatever. <laughs> and she's just... And her whole campaign is, let's look at what we're actually saying when we abuse people. And would we ever say it face-to-face? -face? Face. Which, of course, nobody no. would. And I, I, I just admire someone who... It, it's, about, it's an identity issue, really. She has been pushed into a box as just this one aspect of... A powerful man's life, and she's broken out of the box and done something else with it. And good for her. Well, I think she's absolutely extraordinary. And I think when we look back at that whole affair, we forget how young she yeah. was. And, you know, I have worked in Downing Street, and there is a huge amount of the power is incredibly seductive. Mm -hmm. Of course, it is. Power is an aphrodisiac. But you forget that he was a, a much older man and she was this very young intern whose head, of course, was turned and she sort of fell in love and there was no duty of care in terms of looking after her. She basically, the world slut-shamed her yeah, for absolutely. decades. And I think it is amazing that she has emerged as this, I think, very strong but very honest. She's very honest about what she's kind of gone through. But, James, I mean your life online, do you feel that you get a lot of uh, abuse? Do you engage in, in rough and tumble on on social media? As somebody who is, you know, you've got a clear set of views, you're not afraid to express them. Where is the, the line that you draw for yourself? 
I used to get um, a lot of abuse, but it's kind of I don't really engage in arguments online anymore. I just kind of broadcast stuff and engage with my friends um, who are on there. But um, I, I kind of gave up um, arguing or debating, which always ends up with arguing with random yeah, people. You have about to do debating things. in the sort of square in, because it doesn't. It's not a debate. It just yeah. ends up being a, a, a slanging match. Yeah, and it sounds kind of you know whether it sounds like stuck up or something but I can't be bothered to like engage with random people about like argue with them I mean I don't if it's someone I don't if it's not someone I know and respect and they just want to shout at me I mean I, I, I don't care really it's, it's a waste of my time you know you, I, you could be doing something more productive so I mean there's always going to be someone who wants to shout at you online for your opinion yeah Um. so and if you engage with all of it there's you find you're on Twitter all day um, oh and, and not getting anything it, done uh, yesterday was world mental health day and I think our online engagements absolutely are damaging our mental health a hundred percent, and we have to learn about how to how to care less, but how to look after ourselves yeah. more in this new digital space. But also, I think there's always a dangerous undertow to to this so-called public space. I mean, think of Joe Cox. You know, real terrible things can happen to people who are in the public yeah. in public life, and I and I think women are particularly vulnerable, and so. I think we need to be careful about it, not just for our sanity, but for our safety. Oh, absolutely. And look, um, a, a, a Labour MP, Rosie Cooper, recently somebody got arrested because they were going to, they wanted to murder her, which was horrific. Well, um, thank you for that uh, story. Now, James, finally, your, your villains of the week. You've got a big group of people that you're not happy with. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a joke because, I mean, a third of under-25s now drink no alcohol, according to, to a, a new survey, a new so study of youth villains. drinking. Yeah, These I mean, sober young people. They've, they've, <laughs> been cast, they. they've been cast as villains um, in, in this, in a lot of the, the way this new story is reported, which is kind of bizarre, like what is wrong with young people that are not drinking anymore. <laughs> I kind of like it. I mean, um, I don't really drink. I, I, I really hate uh, drinking culture. I like to have a drink occasionally with my friends, but I hate the pressure there is on people when you go out that you have to drink or you can't be sociable. Um, I think that's a very British thing in some ways, this, this idea you can't express yourself self fully um, unless you're inebriated. Um, and I just think there's more to do. I think the reason for it is there's just more to do. So why nowadays. are millennials sort of turning away from the booze? I think there's just think? more to do. I mean, when, when I was kind of 17, 18... Um, Obviously, I didn't start drinking until I was eighteen. Just to obviously, make, just to absolutely, of but course, there was, none there was, of us did. There was just less to do. I mean, there was there wasn't really. I mean, the internet was just kicking off then. <laughs> back um, in the day, yeah, there wasn't really much to do. And and if you go back to my parents' generation or grandparents' generation, it's 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 exacerbated more. There just wasn't so much to do. Whereas now, you don't need to drink. There's all there's you know there's you've got a cinema in your house with Netflix. Basically, you've got. Um, there's a lot of stuff to do when you when you go out. Um, you don't that, that doesn't revolve around just sitting in the pub drinking. I mean, I I notice I definitely notice a change. There is a generational shift because I'm definitely part of that generation where like wine o'clock is the thing, <laughs> and I'd love to sit here being really sanctimonious, but I was doing karaoke till two o'clock this morning with Angela Rayner <laughs> drinking quite a lot of alcohol. So I'm and I'm a Muslim as well. So I mean, this is how bad I am on the alcohol thing. But I notice when I do a lot of my stand-up gigs and go to universities, I notice a massive difference. People at university are not drinking as much. Like my old university, Hull, they have stopped doing a freshers' week. They do, instead of doing pub crawls, they do kind of activity crawls or they'll do like coffee crawls or sort of... And it's so interesting. And quite a lot of the, the young people I spoke to said, because we're now paying for our education, we're not getting completely trashed the whole time because they've... I mean, they're racking up a lot of debt... 
and they're not just going to spend the whole time like doing what we probably did when we were at university, which was having a hangover at all. Two o'clock in the afternoon. Melissa, what's your take on oh, it? Oh, I'm the daughter and sister of a teetotaler, so every time I have a drink, I think, God, oh, that's really bad. Um, but I'm also, you know, I'm a classic. So I you enjoy it all the more. Yeah. But I'm also the mother of two 20 somethings, and I'd. Um, I would totally welcome going on a walk instead of drinking. I, I my sense is that these things come in kind of generational waves. This is a this is quite a new move because I think only a few years ago university students were drinking a lot. So there's a there's a fashion element in it. It's not just that there's more to do. I think just these things come in waves, and so I um I, I welcome this wave. But I'm I'm not sure it's the end of the story of young people and drinking. Um, I mean, so I wonder if there's a class element in it. The, well, that's interesting as well because one of the other um, factors is that uh, I think the the online thing is interesting. I mean, we just talked about online abuse, but there's another thing about kind of um, kind of Instagramming your clean, healthy yeah, yeah. life as well, and I think that's quite a factor. But also, um, somebody was saying that because these young people now have almost documented their lives on digital, they're sort of digital natives, there is an anxiety that if they're posting lots of pictures being drunk, that could affect their sort of future kind of employment prospects as well. But I wonder if they'll come off digital. I think if there's a beginning of coming off all these things. You know, I talked to quite a lot of 20-something who are saying, I've got rid of that account, I've got rid of that account. And I think that's just as healthy as not drinking because I think that reflective culture is really bad for people. The, there's a, the gym as well. So, I mean, the popularity of going to the gym. I mean, I started going in 2008, so 10 years ago. And at the time, it was still quite a niche thing. Like, not many people went and, into the weight room, for example. But now you go to the gym and it's full of kind of... Uh, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Um, and women as well as men. Yeah, we're, we're yeah men and women, yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, hear, obviously, if you, if I'm not doing it, but I if hear on the weekend, people tell me. It's full of people, and those people have will, will not have been out drinking the night yeah. before. So, I mean, that's a good thing. That, no, that is absolutely um, uh, a good thing. Uh, well, lots for us to reflect on. them into politics, though. Well, now that they're yeah. not drinking. And politics is the absolute worst for drinking culture and, and, lots and, journalism of, and well. mental health issues as well, absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much, uh, Melissa and James. That was an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion. Just a reminder of the books, James Bloodworth's book is Hired Six Months in Low Wage Britain and Melissa Benn's book is Life Lessons, The Case for a National Education Service. Thank you so much uh, for listening to the podcast. Uh, this has been the Unheard Weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika, and do join us again next week. <laughs>